created live on Fireside. Good. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Human Challenge, where we explore all the human challenges in today's world, the challenges of being human, and how we can challenge ourselves to be more human for the greater good. I'm your host, Vanessa Ferlano, and today we're joined by Dr. Francine McCarthy, Earth Sciences Professor at uh, Brock University, and Brian Davey, CEO and founder of Tagona Press in Northern Ontario, Sault Ste. Marie, which where I am from. So I'm very, very honored to always feature our Sault Ste. Marie friends. Um, at first glance, you might think that we have these two seemingly different people together, but I'm very excited to tell you why. Um, so Dr. McCarthy actually researches something well, which you're going to tell us about called the Anthropocene era that, that we are in based on human interve intervention on the planet. And she does this at a site in Southern Ontario, Lake Crawford, where Brian actually has family ties to. So it's going to be a very interesting episode to kind of hear a little bit about both the kind of science and the human intervention. Uh, but there's also going to be, uh, we will then complement that with some of these kind of family stories and the family ties. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to Dr. McCarthy right away. So tell us, we might need to kind of set the stage a bit here. Um, you know, obviously, as, as humans in our evolution, we've gone through different eras. So maybe you can tell us a bit about some of these eras and then why you believe right now we need to kind of redefine the one that we believe we are in. Yeah, so the geologic timescale is broken up into eons, eras, and periods and epochs. And it's uh, a new epoch that we are planning to add to that time scale. So the Anthropocene epoch is loosely speaking the interval of time that humans have so greatly impacted the planet that it actually shifted the earth systems, the way the earth behaves. What we have been doing for the past five years, the Anthropocene Working Group, we've been looking for evidence that that did happen, that humans have altered the planet to the point that it is no longer in the same state that it was during the Holocene. So we would be bringing the Holocene epoch to an end and erecting on that timescale, putting the Anthropocene in. Yes, indeed. The answer is uh, we've studied 12 sites. All 12 sites showed evidence of a major shift in sort of a tipping point that was reached around the middle of the 20th century, the 1950s. And the best place to record those changes happens to be Crawford Lake. And of all the sites that we studied, it's the one that captures that the best. And so, yes, I was very fortunate to be the person leading that work. And uh, as you know, it's, it's a beautiful place. So um, tons of fun to visit all the time. And so maybe, I mean, I, I, think, I think that's super interesting. And as someone who doesn't know a lot about, um, you know, how you study these things, uh, what exactly are you looking for, you know, in terms of data? You know, what are you looking for to tell you that, yes, there has been a shift? You know, what are you looking yeah. at? Well, so so a little bit back to your first question, and then I'll hit that one. The We're currently in the Cenozoic era, and what made that happen, brought an end to the previous one, was the asteroid that hit the planet, and the dinosaurs became extinct, and a whole bunch of things became extinct. So that was about 66 million years ago. Uh, we've been in that same era, and we still are, and, but we're in different periods of that era. So the Ice Age, the Quaternary, and, and now the, the Anthropocene. What we're looking for in terms of markers of the Anthropocene, markers that were no longer in a Holocene world, are 
markers of a change in particularly the atmosphere and the climate system and how we can understand how the earth system works, how the climate system works to help us project into the future. Because if you're, if you don't understand the system that you're living in, making sensible decisions about a path forward, you might as well just throw a dart at a board and, you know, hope for the best. But if you understand the system, then you have a chance of making better decisions. And if you think you're still operating in a Holocene world, if you're, search image or your, your, your worldview is, is not appropriate to the problems that you're facing today, which is kind of what we've been seeing on the news, then you have to actually accept that you're no longer in the Holocene, you're in the Anthropocene, it's a different world, we have to come to grips with that, understand it, own it, if you will, and move forward with that understanding and, and putting a line on the time scale and saying, yes, we're no longer in the Holocene. We're in a world that humans have altered too much to call it Holocene. And we have to come to grips with that. So, okay. So just to recap, basically the markers that you, that were once present in the Holocene are no longer present at all. The, uh, it's more that there are markers in the Anthropocene that weren't there in the Holocene. So there are things that humans have invented, created, that didn't exist before that have since. Uh, so plastics, for instance, have become pervasive. I mean, they were invented a little bit before the middle 20th century, but they really took off. If, if you, you know, if you had been alive when I was young, plastic wrappers and throwaway containers were almost non-existent. Plastic bags didn't exist. Everything was paper. Now we live in a plastic society. So, so plastics are one example. The main example, the, what we call the primary marker, the thing that tells you, yes, you're definitely um, in the Anthropocene, you know, as you go up your sediment or whatever it is you're looking at, you cease to be in the Holocene and boom, you're in the Anthropocene. The main thing is plutonium, bomb fallout. And we've, you know, we've been living with the whole Oppenheimer Barbie thing for a little while now. So everybody's probably more aware of the bomb than they were a couple of weeks ago. And that fallout, you, you know, you see those big mushroom clouds and the fallout went all around the world within a year. So it goes up into the upper atmosphere, circles the entire world, falls all over the entire world. And surprisingly at Crawford Lake, we didn't expect to have a very strong bomb fallout record because of where we are. We're not close to the Pacific testing grounds, but we actually have the best record of any of the sites. Not the strongest record, but the record that most closely mimics what we know, how much radioactivity, you know, we know was thrown up into the atmosphere, how much, how many radionuclides, these things like plutonium fell back to earth because so many nuclear weapons were being tested through the Cold War. Huh. Interesting. And so, okay, so I want to jump over to Brian real quick. So Brian, like you grew up on this lake. How does hearing things like that, like how does that make you feel about this lake and about like these memories that you have, like, like, you know, share with us a little bit of that for us. <laughs> 
I can only say, Vanessa, and first of all, it's it's wonderful to be here. I have exchanged emails with, with Francine, and it's equally wonderful mm-hmm. to be on this podcast with her. And I can simply say uh, on behalf of myself and our family, and certainly my mother, Francine, who coincidentally, ladies, um, turns 87 today on August oh, the 24th. Oh, happy birthday. She was born in 1906, and I know that she will be watching and very, and I used I, I use her word. Yeah, we're having lunch tomorrow in Peterborough. It's going to be wonderful. But my mom's word is gobsmacked, the old English expression. And it probably is just as good a one as I could ever think of to describe how our broader Crawford and Mahan cousin family uh, sort of received the news about this wonderful place that was part of our, has always been part of our family heritage. Um, as as Francine knows from, from the history of, of this property, it was bought by my great-great-grandfather, George Crawford, in 1883. A beautiful tract, uh, as Francine has described, on the Niagara Escarpment. It's only six acres, uh, 2.6 hectares, I believe, in terms of surface area, but it's deep. And my mom will tell you, as I'm pretty certain in this one, the last living person who actually lived at Crawford Lake, she did for four years as a little girl with her family, it was always a bit different. It was always seen as a family as beautiful and idyllic, but it was dark, it was cold, it had that somewhat mysterious element. I remember I discussing with my sister, uh, Mary, uh, a couple of days ago, we used to play hide-and-seek in these amazing crevices along the shore where there's now a boardwalk, there were family picnics, there were family ball games at where I'm, I'm pretty sure, Francine, the Iroquois Village is now located uh, on the site. And so all of a sudden, you have a, a lot of people in the Crawford and Matten family who have such profound, wonderful memories of this idyllic spot. And in July of this year, Crawford Lake is thrust into the international spotlight as the golden spike of a new uh, geological um, epoch. Uh, it, as I said, my mom called it gobsmacking, and I think it's the right word. It, it totally galvanized our family. And there are, uh, there are cousins scattered across the world who have been following the story in The Economist, The New York Times, all over the place. Uh, Francine and her team's work is, is remarkable. It, it has its controversial elements. Uh, I don't have to tell Francine that. But it, it's amazing. And, and we as a, as a wide sort of uh, globally far-flung family are absolutely thrilled. I can't think of a better word. Uh, that Wow. Little Crawford Lake is part of some sort of geological epicenter. It, it's it's been amazing, mm-hmm. and um, I've expressed to uh, Francine and some of her colleagues in emails. We, uh, between us, us family members, we have a pretty decent grasp of a social history that surrounds this amazing place. Uh, not the least of which is our wonderful cousin uh, Lynn. Uh, uh, Rogalski, a Matten um, cousin, my mom's second cousin, who's got over a hundred photographs of Crawford Lake taken from about 1890 forward into the present day, stuff like that. That really it gives our family kind of a, a, a wonderful connection to something that is an international development. And and I defy anybody to say that, that isn't really exciting. I sure am uh, excited by everything that's happened. I know that my my various cousins and my mom and my sister are equally thrilled about it. 
That's amazing. I love that. And I really hope that you'll share with me some of those photos because I would like to, I would love to see it. I'd love to see uh, how this like looked back in the 1890s. I mean, I just think that's, that's fascinating. And I mean, so maybe- we, we, We'd really like to digitize those and make them part of the story. I, I can tell you this, yeah. Vanessa, the, the first thing- I can tell you, Francine, Vanessa, without fear of contradiction, the first words out of my mother's mouth tomorrow when we're going to lunch to celebrate her birthday, when am I going Francine? <laughs> so that will be so on the agenda. I'm just warning you. <laughs> um, so Francine, um, when, like, what is it about this lake? Um, and I was looking through the coring videos. Mm -hmm. What What is it about this lake uh, that makes it so perfect to do the work that you do? Yeah. And then the other question too is, is so you know, you're talking about plutonium. Um, and I mean, like how, how, when you look for some of these markers, how do we know, how do we correlate it, uh, you know, and say that, yeah, it, how do we know yeah. for sure it is because of human intervention? Do you know what I mean? What are the sort of assumptions right. that are there that we can Yeah, well, I'll start, I'll start with that one and then I'll go back to why the lake is so special. Um, plutonium-239 is only created in a nuclear reaction. So it doesn't happen, it doesn't occur naturally. So if you find it, it's because humans have, you know, brought it together in, in a, a nuclear bomb or in a nuclear reactor to, to generate electricity. So that's why it's, it's what we call a novel product, uh, anthropogenic, man-made, first human-made, and it didn't exist. So if you see it, then you are automatically in the Anthropocene according to the way that we're defining it, because that is the primary marker. So when we see in Crawford Lake, as I said, we have a really good and faithful record of bomb fallout. We have, we see everything from, you know, the, 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 the beginning of, well, well, we see the atomic bombs in 1945 and, you know, the tests in the New Mexico desert, et cetera. We see um, the development of the Cold War. We see all of these things and we know exactly which year is being analyzed because the special nature of the hydrology, the water column of Crawford Lake is that it doesn't mix all the way to the bottom. It's what we call meromictic. It's permanently stratified so that the sediments don't get disturbed on the lake bed at all. So every year deposition is undisturbed. It's not mixed up. And because it has a seasonal nature, there's dark sediments that accumulate when it's cold and calcite crystals form in the water and sink to the lake bed in the summer. So we have this dark light, dark light, like, you know, and what we do is we sample just that, that couplet, the two parts, the, the light and the dark, the summer and the, the, the winter of that year. And we measured that one. And then we measured the one above and the one above. So we have annual measurements of not just plutonium, but a, a number of other, markers so physical chemical and biological evidence of what was going on on the planet so so the sediments of crawford lake like tree rings every year we can count back and know exactly what year that was we can take that year's sediment and what was the health of the planet and we have lots of expertise lots of expensive equipment lots of you know lo lots of time money energy and and intellect went into this but we've been able to 
piece together the history of the planet by reading the sediments from Crawford Lake and seeing the, the, the big shift that happened to the planetary system in the mid 20th century that, as I said, we, we have to accept if we're going to move forward in a, in an informed way. Hmm. So that's, I mean, is that, so, you know, you describe the lake um, with a, with a certain term, uh, uh, but yeah, yeah. it basically means that the bottom of the lake never really changes, right? Regardless of what's happening. Yeah. Around it, correct? Yeah. So, so really the bottom of the lake, so, so it's, it's a sinkhole. It's uh, in the limestones of the Niagara escarpment, which is, which is what Niagara Falls flows over much further South. Uh, so it's that rock unit that's, was dissolved and caved in. So it's really, really, really deep, small, but really, really deep. And so the mixing of the water doesn't go all the way to the bottom. You go, the mixing happens 15 and a half meters, but the lake is actually nearly 24 meters deep. So there's nearly nine meters that don't mix. And that nine meters is not like the water above it. It's pure like well water, groundwater. So that underneath the lake that Brian's family, you know, lived in, swam in, etc., underneath is a hidden lake that they've probably never reached because it's nearly 16 meters down and it's completely different and it does not interact with the waters above. It's much more much more dense, a little bit saline. Um, it's uh, very very cold very, very dark, a very different place than the water that we see when we look at Crawford Lake. So there's this mystery, hidden mystery lake underneath there. And that's where the magic is. The, the beautiful Crawford Lake is actually just masking this unique hidden lake where these sediments are allowed to accumulate the way they do. Hmm. That's, I mean, I just, I love hearing that. And I just think it's so fascinating. Just you know, the things that we don't know about our world and how right. we work in nature. And I think, uh, you know, that in itself, when I think of like the work that you're doing, trying to define this era. And then, you know, I, I know Brian mentioned some of the controversies because I, mm. I know even when I was promoting this episode, I saw some comments and I was like, yeah, oh, like, what are people talking about? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it's pretty visceral. Yeah. So, yeah. And I'm just, and I, but I just think it's, it's, it's all very fascinating that we don't, you know, that, like, you know, that we don't want to see some of this beauty and the way that our humans, like the way that we have intervened on the planet's evolution, right? Like, yes, the planet does evolve its own way, but like we are impacting that. And and I know Brian, like Brian is a huge outdoorsy advocate. He's like, when I meet him, he's like, oh, I just kayak like, like three hours. <laughs> and I'm like, cool, I just woke up. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, maybe Brian is like a nature enthusiast, like, you know, you hear some of this work, like, what does this like mean to you? And how does this impact you in that perspective? You know, knowing this was like your family lake. And now this is like the research that's being done. And, you know, we're seeing how this is impacting how our human nature is impacting the planet. Like, what, what, what do you feel about that? Putting all these pieces together? I guess Vanessa and, and, uh... Francine, I guess that, that's the secondary piece for me that makes this story a very personal and wonderful family story, uh, even have even greater immediacy. I mean, um, 
I, I do, my, my wife Marianne and I and our family look surely superior. I am the mad kayaker of Sunnyside Beach, Sault Ste. Marie. I, I love kayaking, I love snowshoeing, I like running, I like being out in the natural world. And I like to think that, like a lot of people who, who live in the Sault Ste. Marie and Oklahoma area who love the outdoors, you have a wonderful appreciation that A, it's precious, and B, what we as a society, without judging or without taking a political stance, but what we as humans have done to our planet is on the precipice of complete destruction. And that's not alarmist talk, uh, Vanessa, that's not, that, that's fact. That is scientifically proven. And, and Francine's wonderful work and her team is only contributing to that, to that proposition. We face uh, imminent, imminent, of course, in geological terms, maybe a longer period than next week. But we face imminent, irreversible destruction. And when I'm paddling my kayak along uh, the shore of Lake Superior, past Grocap and up towards Gooley Bay, it's hard not to think about the fact that this might not be there for my grandchildren or my great-grandchildren. And I love to think that, again, people can take the political stances they want about things. They can interpret um, Dr. Francine's work, her team, and try and put some political spin on it. But I'm enough of a, I hope, a rationalist, somebody believes in the scientific method, somebody believes in proving things, hypotheses that have to be taken and supported by fact. I'd like to think that we've reached a point in our lives collectively as a human society that we do understand that we have not just a crisis, we have a, a pending catastrophe. And if the, the golden spike that, that Dr. Francine and her team have identified here at Crawford Lake can in any way in any way, perhaps motivate people to start thinking real hard about their own lives and about what they can do to change where we're going, then I think that's maybe the wonderful um, corollary that goes to everything that's associated with Crawford Lake. I, I know certainly the people in my wonderful family would think the same way. It really, I guess, Vanessa, in a, in a roundabout way, it's really reinforced what I've thought over the last number of years, that is that science has the answers for what we've done to ourselves. It's time for us to wake up and just understand we have to act and not just be passive, uh, passive participants or spectators about something. Um, it would be horrible if all the wonderful uh, Anthropocene working group the, uh, uh, research just simply was, oh, well, that's great. We have another epoch. Well, that's great. And then nothing happened. <laughs> that would be horrible. Um, and and for those who would politicize this issue, well, I, I, good for you. I, I have no time for it. Um, this is science. It's not politics. And and our environment belongs to everybody. I'm a passionate believer that the, the environment and a clean environment is a human right. And if, if one accepts mm -hmm. that proposition, too, then everything that uh, Francine and her team are doing really contribute. Really, I hope the need a little bit towards meaningful action and not just great scientific thing, Crawford Lake, great, and move on to the next problem. It, it, I, I hope it isn't that. Yeah. Did you want to add anything there, Francine? Yeah. Um, so the 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 anti-anthropoceners, if I refer to them that way, I don't really understand why there's this knee-jerk reaction against 
the idea because we have a lot of data, as Brian was saying, there, there's data from 12 sites, not just this one. And it's pretty clear. And honestly, anybody who watches the news, you know, it's, it's pretty clear. I think if we had been bringing this work to fruition five years ago when we started, people might shrug a bit. But the last several years have only shown us that we're in crisis mode. This is impending doom uh, in, in, in a sense, unless we accept it and deal with it appropriately. And, and the analogy that I've used several times is um, the planet has evolved and it's no longer a Holocene planet, it's an Anthropocene planet. So it's like when your child becomes a teenager and all those hormones kick in and they behave completely differently. They're like a completely different person. And if you try to deal with them the way you used to and make decisions that way, you won't have a relationship with that person anymore. You have to grow with them and treat them like an adolescent, young adult, et cetera, as opposed to a child. So we have a world that if we try to apply the way we dealt with it in the last, you know, well, the way it's been in the last 12,000 years, that doesn't work anymore. And it's going to bring us to more disaster if we just insist on not listening to the data and just pretending it's a blip. You know, it would all go back to the way it was physically, you know, the physics of greenhouse gases mean that that's impossible for thousands of years even if we stopped all combustion today it would not go back to the way it was so the idea that well let's just wait a you know a few more years to see how it turns out that i don't know that we can take that kind of risk and 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 keep waiting um yeah so if it really is just a political ploy it's it's very short-sighted Right. No, I appreciate those comments and, and I do appreciate too, um, you know, Brian, what you were saying about, I mean, and you both actually really said this about our, our human actions. And I know for myself, when I was going through the research and I was looking through the videos and, and I was looking into this a little more, it did actually make me consider my own human actions. And I found myself even being like, well, I'm going to take my dog for a walk. Do I need to drive to the park to do that? Or can I walk to the park and, and walk my dog? You know, like it just very, even like minor things like that, though, I started really taking that into consideration a little bit more and, and, yeah, I think I think that like, I mean, of course, we're not going to stop all emissions and in, in anytime soon. That's just not possible. But I think it is some of these like little things that we can do um, that that can help. Right? All these little things do add up in a way. Um, and I'm I think so aware of plastic now and like not using it unless I have to, and reusing it and reusing it and reusing it. I used to just ball it up and throw it out, you know. And yeah. We can't. I appreciate that. And I guess my last question here would be, um, you know, we're talking about the things we can do. So, you know, you want to define this new era, but I imagine that's not something that you can just like decide to do, right? I think there's like a whole process for something like this. So, you know, tell us a little bit about it. I think there's some voting. Um, oh, yeah. Ryan was yeah. telling me he was going to be ready to vote. He's planning his travels <laughs> already. He doesn't have a vote. No, uh, not many people have a vote. It's uh it goes from the Anthropocene Working Group to the Stratigraphic Commission, the people who deal with the calendar. And there are actually three different hoops that it has to go through, three different sort of gates that it has to run through before it either gets the, the nod or no. 
Um, one, one interesting thing about the golden spike, we're, we're actually proposing not just a golden spike for the Anthropocene epoch, but we're, we have to also have a golden spike for that next level down, the age. And the age is always named for the site where it's defined. And so it'll be called the Crawfordian. So if they say yes to the golden spike for at least an age, even if they leave that age within the Holocene, so at least if they accept that there is something in the mid 20th century, Crawford Lake, you know, epitomizes that, that'll be something. Um, but um, yeah, really not having acknowledgement that Anthropos humans have made this change by calling the Anthropocene, the Anthropocene epoch is missing the mark because like I said, you have to, you have to own it, accept it and deal with it face on the time for the ostrich, you know, head in the sand. They're just, there just isn't that kind of time in, in the people say, well, it's only been 73 years, but I say, yes, indeed. It's only been 73 years. And this is what has happened. The trajectory is so steep. That if we wait another 10 years to see what's going on, is that window for action closing really quickly? Um, like I said, the last five years, it's sort of, you can sort of see it closing. And so, Brian, I saw this little smile on your face when they said the Crawfordian uh, yeah. era. <laughs> I bet you that's a really, uh, really touching thing that would to be acknowledged. Um, I guess my question here then, so you're traveling, you said you told me you were going to travel to, no, no, you told me you were traveling not to vote, but to, on the, the day that it was announcement. So where is this announcement happening? Oh, Brian, did I lose you? Oh, he may not be hearing us. Maybe. All right. That's all right. I think that... I'm here. Oh, here oh, oh, yeah. Your screen's frozen. Can you hear me? Ah, we got you back. Okay. No, I was going to ask you, I saw that little smile when you heard that it could be... Oh, okay. It could no, be known was... as the Crawfordian era. <laughs> and I, I'm sure that that's a very wonderful acknowledgement. So I know you mentioned you were going to be traveling um, and I misunderstood. So it wasn't to vote, but for the announcement. So where is this announcement happening? Uh, well, the announcement for the Golden Spike or not might be in Korea, but then again, if it's not ready by then, it won't be then. So we don't know yet when the announcement will be. We can only have an announcement once there's a decision made, and, and it, it's out of our hands once we hand the proposal over, and it's in the hands of the Stratigraphic Commission. So we just wait to be told, but we'll let Brian know. <laughs> yeah. I'll be I'll be representing many, Francine. I have I've been deputized to be there wherever <laughs> it is, and I'm I'm thrilled to do that. It's funny, Vanessa, what what Dr. Francine was saying. Um, and Vanessa knows that I work very closely with a wonderful man named Gary McGuffin, mm -hmm. and Gary and I are working on a, a group of seven uh, project where eventually Francine and Vanessa will be able to put on their VR goggles and walk into a group of seven. Um, painting fully immersed and then step out and look at Gary's wonderful world-class uh, photography. A lot of it taken from the North shore, Lake Superior. And in June, we were at a place called Coldwell Harbor 
which is now a ghost fishing village, but up until 1950, very vibrant. But the sea lamprey killed um, the lake trout fishery in Lake Superior about 1950. And how did the sea lamprey get into the Great Lakes? They came through boats built by humans that came up the St. Lawrence Seaway, right? So if the, the ways that human activity has impacted nature to me, just that very tiny micro example, are so profound that uh, anybody who somehow thinks that this is some sort of big fake uh, yeah. perpetrated by you know, some, by, yeah. by, uh, by some evil force is just completely crazy. I mean, you look at Colwell Harbor uh, on there, it's about 15 kilometers west of Marathon, right at the top of mm-hmm. uh, Lake Superior. Beautiful, beautiful spot. And to think that, you know, um, 75 years ago, there were fishing boats going in and out. And now there are none and the place is desolate because the sea lamprey that came in through boats that we built uh, came up the seaway. It just, there's so many examples that only buttress um, what everything that Dr. Francine and her team have done. That to me, as a guy who doesn't belong to a political party, has no political affiliation, just hopes that maybe we can all do the right thing. uh, It's just become, my mom's word gobsmacking applies to those arguments too. I appreciate that. Um, I think we'll close it there. I want to thank you both for coming on the show. Thank you, Francine, for all the work that you do. Um, you Thanks. know, we'll be, we're sending all, whatever you need, whatever we can do, which I understand. Positive vibes. Fans, but yes. yes, we're sending Good. all positivity, hoping that uh, <laughs> that it does go in your favor. Brian will still be present at the, I might go if I can fit in his suitcase. Uh, we'll, yes. we'll, we'll be there. <laughs> Good, good. Um, Yes, thank you so much. And Brian, thank you for sharing the stories. And I do appreciate all of these comments as well on just again. Uh, it's wonderful to, wonderful to be here. And I'll be in touch so much, about friends. those archival and, images. And... <laughs> yes, please, me too. <laughs> you will have them. <laughs> right. tell, your mom, tell your mom that we said happy birthday. <laughs> happy birthday, for sure. Thanks I, very much. I, I will. Take thank care. you. Take care, everyone. Bye. <laughs> Created live on Fireside.